Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all out this morning and uh, being able to be here to celebrate with us. Uh, we have a couple of more, even though Christmas season has kind of turned, uh, we have this week and next week still in James, and then we'll start preaching and uh, learning uh, from the Gospels in terms of the birth of Christ, uh, but we just have a little bit more to get through in James here. And um, as you know, if you've been following along, James is sort of inspecting the early church, very early church. This is a letter that's written um, probably mid-40s A.D., um, and so it's one of the first letters that was ever written to the churches, and it's drawing on teaching that James has done, and it draws especially from the words of Jesus, because we don't have the letters of Paul, we don't have the letters of Peter and John and all of those things yet, so the church is really operating from the teaching of Jesus, which is a good place to operate from, and James is referring to the teaching of Jesus as he instructs the church. And what we see here in James chapter 4 um, is that as he's inspecting the church, he sees brothers and sisters, Christians, in the church in conflict. He sees brothers and sisters quarreling with each other and fighting with one another, at war with each other. And that shouldn't be. And James wants to get to what is the root cause of conflicts between brothers and sisters in Christ. What is the root cause of why we are at war with each other? And in fact, as you'll learn in your life groups, James, and you'll see here, James is going to talk about there's actually three wars going on. You think you're fighting a war with your brothers and sisters, but there's a war going on inside your heart, in your passions and desires, and you are ultimately at war with God. So it's not that you are in conflict with your brothers and sisters, it's that you're in conflict with yourself and in conflict with God. And these conflicts arise from selfish ambition and desires and wars within ourselves and James identifies the problem of our condition, and then James describes the character of God that's going to make peace possible in a church, in a Christian relationship, or any relationship that is in conflict. He's going to describe the character of God that we need to lean into that makes it possible, and then how we apply the remedy in our lives. And if there's anybody here this morning that is in conflict, whether with a fellow believer or with family or with whoever, Listen up to what James has to say, because he's put his finger on the pulse of the problem of the early church. Brothers and sisters are quarreling and fighting with each other, and they need the remedy that he is about to spell out. It's been helpful in the past few weeks that we look at the structure of the text, because we're taking James in big chunks. And so this text, you'll see in verse 1 to 4, James is describing our condition, a sinful condition that's arising ultimately from idolatry. In verses 5 and 6, he's going to describe the character of God, which is love and grace that we need to lean into. And then in verse 7 to 10, he's going to talk about the remedy, which is repentance in humility. So with that in mind, I'll just pray, and then we will read these first 10 verses of chapter 4. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving it for us by your Holy Spirit, and we thank you that your Holy Spirit is present here now, both in this place and in the hearts and minds of believers, in, to be able to translate this text into our lives and apply it. And it is no less true today than it was 2,000-some uh, years ago when James wrote this. And so we just pray that it would be uh, transformative to our lives as believers. And if there are any that are not yet believers, let them have their eyes opened to the nature of you, your character and goodness, your grace and your love towards us. It's a jealous love that we will learn, and it is a, your love towards everyone who would call on your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
So, verses 1 to 10 in James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So the first part of the text is James describing our condition, which is a sinful condition that's arising ultimately from idolatry, although he doesn't use that word. There's a number of behaviors here that are all easily categorized as sin, and sin is idolatry and sin is incompatible with the worship of God. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And it's a good question that James is asking. He's asking this of churches. He's asking this of Christians. Last week, we learned that those who have the wisdom of God are peacemakers, and so quarrels and fights and strife do not come from those mature peacemakers. So where this, is this antagonism coming from in the church? He says, among you. So James is not talking about the inevitable conflict that the church will have with the world. James is talking about conflict, sadly, in a church within the body of Christ. And he says, is it not that your passions are at war within you? So not only are you at war with each other, but he says it's really because there's a fight going on inside of you. That's the real problem. James dials the focus in closer than the church body to our body. It's not just the body of Christians, but it's you personally. The fighting is among you, assembled Christians, but the fighting is because you are at war with your own passions. There's a war going on in the body of Christ because there's a war taking place in every individual Christian's heart. And when we lose the war in our heart, the war spills over to other people. So the issue here is not so much the battle. Paul would call this the battle of our old flesh in Romans 6 and 7, which through Jesus Christ and through the Spirit, we have some degree of always fighting that battle and winning with our flesh. But the quarrel and the strife is bubbling out because these Christians are losing the battle of their heart, and now they're in conflict with each other. And there's an important application here, because when we are at war with others, one of the very first things we need to do is step back and ask ourselves, are we quarreling and are we fighting and are we carrying grudges against others because we are actually losing the battle of our passions within us? Because we are losing the battle against our selfish ambitions, James called them just a few verses earlier. We go through life thinking that our quarrel is with other people, and it's against other people. But James says here, the first battle is within ourselves. And very few people, even very few Christians, pause to consider that first. 
Very few Christians pause and say, wait a minute, why am I so angry with this other person? What is out of control inside of me that I am unable to be at peace over whatever this issue is? Whatever problem I have with this other person, I am incapable of being at peace because I'm not at peace in my heart. And we don't stop and ask ourselves, are my desires in line? Is my trust fully in God? Am I secure in his sovereignty? Am I content with what he's providing in my life? Because if I'm not right on those questions about God within myself, then I am definitely going to be discontent with anybody around me. And I'm not going to trust the outcome of whatever is going on. And I'm going to want from them what I should be getting from God. If you're in a prolonged battle with another person, especially another believer, James says, look at the war going on inside yourself first. And he summarizes the effect of those selfish passions in verse 2. He says, this is what's going on. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Now, you always pause at this verse and you think, are Christians literally murdering each other? I hope not. Maybe, but I hope not. But I think more likely the frame of reference that James is speaking again is this shared knowledge of the teachings of Jesus. That's what the church is operating on at this time. Sermon on the Mount, the parables, all of the things that Jesus taught, the church is firmly rooted and knows that teaching. And so when James says murder, I I think what he has in mind is something like 1 John 3.15, where Jesus says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And he repeated it in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He said, you've heard it said you shall not murder, and murderers will be liable to the judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will also be liable to judgment, just like a murderer. So echoing what his half-brother Jesus says, James says, your fighting and your quarreling and your bickering and your slander makes you a murderer under the law. And it's all because of this selfish passion that is at war within you. And then we can summarize verses 3 and 4 together. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, or you could say you idolatrous people, it's going to mean the same thing. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And you see here that, in fact, the war is with God, enmity with God, enemies of God. We are at war with God. And so what James says here, when he says you're adulterous, he says you are seeking what the world has over godliness. Your eyes are wandering to the enticements of the world. And when James says that, he's not just talking about the stuff of the world. So he's not talking about people who are, you know, they want boats or they want cars or they want a bigger house or a better job or money or fame. It's the enticement instead to follow the ways of the world. So when James says you adulterous people and their eyes are on the world, he means that their passions are getting pulled away to view their situation and to approach things in a worldly way to embrace the values and the ethics and the methods of relationships and social engagement that are completely apart from God. He's saying, you're not engaging with people in a godly way. You're engaging with each other in a worldly way. Paul deals with this at other times in his scripture when he says, you know, Christians should not be taking people to court. Like, why are you suing one another in the courts? Is there nobody wise enough among you to judge yourselves? We get it. Pagans go to court. Christians don't go to court. James is on the same wavelength here. He says, you are engaging with each other in worldly ways. 
We expect people at work to get angry and envious of each other and to backbite and to undercut each other and try and climb over top of each other on the corporate ladder. That's a worldly way of thinking. You adulterous people, why are you thinking worldly instead of godly? It's idolatry and unfaithfulness when we place the world ahead of God on the altar of our lives. We look to the world to satisfy our circumstance. We look to the world for the answer to our problems rather than looking to God. And that's making an idol of the world and making less of God. And so James summarizes the root war. There's the war with other people, but it's actually a war within yourself. And that war within yourself indicates you're at war with God. You cannot give part of your heart to the world and part of your heart to God. If you seek satisfaction in the world, that means you're not seeking it in God. And the two desires cannot coexist to other, together, and thus the battle, because these passions are at war, our passion for the world and our passion for God. If the world wins, then God is your enemy. Again, going to the teaching of Jesus that this is based on, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or God and the world. And so James summarizes, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, that's not a good conclusion to our condition that we are in. Of all the enemies that you may want, I'll just give you a heads up, God is not one of them. He's a bad enemy to have, but he's a good God. But what makes us enemies of God is our idolatry, our selfishness, our pride in self-direction, which is sin. If we were just to go back to this beginning first four verses here and just kind of categorize what is James talking about here when he's talking about this kind of behavior and we were to label them and give them a category, then he's talking about quarrels, we can call that sin, fighting, we can call that sin, Uh, illegitimate passions, we can call that sin, murder, that's definitely a sin, that's a big one, coveting, yep, that's a sin, you're asking wrongly for the wrong motives, that's a sin, you have adulterous hearts, that's a sin, and you're at friends with the world instead of God, that's a sin too. So, first four verses, here's what's going on. People are sinning. There's a whole bunch of sin in the church. That's our condition. We're sinful people which arises from our idolatry. Well, what's the answer? We want to get to the hope here, right? James says that our hope lies obviously not in ourselves because that's our condition. That's not a good place to look for hope. But our hope is rooted first and foremost in the character of God himself. We need to have a correct understanding of God as our knowledge of God increases in clarity, his love and his grace capture our affections. They overcome our passions for the world and give us a passion for God. And so evil passions are replaced by proper affections. Knowledge of God, as we heard earlier, is the beginning of wisdom. So let's go to the character of God then, which he describes in verse 5 and 6. He says, or do you suppose that it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So James here encapsulates a commonly repeated Old Testament truth about God's love, a description of the unique nature of God's love. 
He says it's not without reason or purpose that the Scripture tells us that God yearns jealously over his special creation, those that carry his spirit. We who bear the spirit of life that he breathed into us. James, again, is going back to Genesis. Remember, I told you, all doctrine finds its roots in Genesis. And here, Genesis 2, 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And James says, We have the spirit of God in us, and that spirit of life that he has given us in creation, he loves, he yearns, jealously over us as his special creation. And the nature of that love is jealous love. He yearns jealously over us. We are his. And although we have willfully determined to choose to be satisfied in the world rather than satisfied in our relationship with God, God has chosen to jealously pursue us. He's chosen to take the initiative to rescue his enemies. Why would he do that? Because God is jealous. It is a jealous love. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, it is a good jealousy. We often think of jealousy as a very negative thing, but there is a right place for jealousy. This is the jealousy that says rightly, you are mine and you are not meant to belong to another. It's the good jealousy that should exist between a husband and wife. Who you are, husband, and who you are, wife, and what you offer is for me. It isn't for others. It's not meant for another. If you give yourself away to another, I am rightly jealous because what you are and who you are is meant for me. It's uniquely mine. But if you, husband, if you, wife, give yourself away to someone other than I, then I'm rightly jealous that someone else has what has been coveted to me. And that's the jealousy that God has. That's how God sees us. We are rightly his. He looks on his people and he says, you are mine and you are giving yourself away. You adulterous people are giving yourself away to others. And so I am loving you jealously. Deuteronomy says it. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Exodus 34, 14, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. In 1 Kings 14, we're told that the sins of Israel in their idolatry provoked or stirred up the jealousy of God. And so James says here, it's not without purpose that the scriptures, the Old Testament, tell us that God is a jealous God. His love is a jealous love. And I'll just repeat again, brothers and sisters, that's a good thing. Amen. Amen. To imagine that God is jealous for us, for you and for me, is staggering. We need to know this. We need to understand this. If we're caught in our sinful passions and our adulterous relationship with the world, James says the first place you start is getting a right understanding of God and his love. Because if you rightly understand God and you rightly understand his love, then the adultery of the world will pale in comparison to the love that God has in store for you. It's not a casual, impassionate, or unaffected love. God's love is passionate and jealous. It's a love that will pursue us and hold us because God loves us so jealously, he does not so easily let us be destroyed apart from him in our sin. 
Not only is God full of love for us, but he also then provides grace towards us. Here's the other thing James wants you to know about God. God loves us jealously, passionately, and in his love, know this, he's a God full of grace. He goes on and he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So the nature of God is to love jealously and to offer us grace to the humble. And it's on this key verse that the whole text pivots. All of our sin encounters the reality of God's love and grace, and that encounter of our sinful selves with God then enacts the remedy. When we understand the love of God and his grace, then the remedy is then enacted when we encounter that. James describes the remedy that should take place from this knowledge of God. He says, this is what happens. This is the resulting effect of encountering God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. In other words, as he was saying in the first four verses, rather than trying to manipulate God in your prayers and get what you want and substituting your desires for God's desires, our response instead is to submit our desires to submit our whole being to God. Rather than rise up and demand and ask wrongly, submit, James says. If we want God's grace to rule in our lives, then we have to bring our lives under God's rule. Remember last week I said I was kind of envious of people who came up with really good turns of phrase? I actually came up with that one this week. So I'm going to say it again so that you get it. If we want to... If we want God's grace to rule in our lives, then we must bring our lives under God's rule. Get it? All right. We cannot expect grace to rule where God does not. We want grace to rule in relationships in our life, but God doesn't rule in those relationships. Why would we expect grace to rule where God does not rule? We cannot rule ourselves and expect godly outcomes. But that seems so often to be what's taking place in our lives. We want to live on our selfish terms, in our selfish passions, but while we're doing that, receive gracious consequences from God. And these Christians that James is writing to are embroiled in fights and quarrels because they want to get what they want on their terms, but somehow they also expect as Christians that they're going to receive the grace of God. God's grace is missing in their lives because they're not submitted to God. And maybe you're experiencing that, and you're wondering why it is that James would instruct this way, why it's going on this way in your life too. Why isn't God giving me grace in all these relationships when, in fact, I'm not letting God rule in any of those relationships? James says our hearts, our minds, our lives must submit to God's heart, his mind, his ways. We diminish that he might increase in our lives. This is how we rid ourselves, not only of worldly consequences, but James goes on to say it even rids us of the enemy of our souls. So he says, submit yourselves to God, and then he says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. As we saw two weeks ago, the impulse to sin is an internal impulse, and yielding to that impulse produces sin. But our enemy has no power over a Christian except the power of that seduction, of that temptation, that passion, that impulse. If we refuse to yield, then we resist the devil, and he has no alternative but to flee. The enemy has no power over anybody who has the Spirit of God within them. We give him reign in our life only when we submit to our internal impulses. And so James says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. 
The gospel gives us two examples of this. In John 13, 13, 2, we're told the devil has already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. And we know that Judas did not resist the impulse of his desires. He did not resist that temptation, and the devil did not flee from Judas. But then later, Jesus says of the disciple Simon Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. See, Satan has no power on his own. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You see, Peter at first didn't resist, but then he did turn. He did resist, and the devil fleed. And he had the power then to strengthen his brothers because he had gone through that temptation. And so we resist the devil, and we turn like Peter turns. James tells us where we should turn. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's where we go. When we resist the devil, we turn towards God. God's description of repentance is turning towards him and drawing near to him. The prophets continually reminded Israel under the old covenant in places like Zechariah 1.3 and Malachi 3.7 to turn towards God, to turn towards God. We see it in the parable of the prodigal son when the father, when the son, you know, he's eating with the pigs and he realizes that even the servants of his father have it better than him and he turns away from the world and he returns home. And when he turns towards home, the father sees him afar off and runs to him. If we draw near to God, we discover that he's always been drawing near to us. James explains what causes the distance and how to reverse it. This is why you're far from God, because you're unclean. He says, cleanse your your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's our lack of purity that turns us away from God and puts a distance between us and him. If you're feeling like you're far from God... If you feel like God is far away from you, look at what's going on in your life. Is it quarrels and fights and selfish desires and impurity and distorted thinking and double-mindedness? Because if you put away that impurity and put away the double-mindedness, by double-minded, James means you love the world and you try to love God at the same time. That's a double-minded person, right? And so James says you put that away, you clean yourself from that impurity, And you turn towards God. And if you turn away from sin and our attempt to hold that double allegiance, then we will start drawing near to God and we will discover that God draws near to us. Then he says in verse 9, this is what it's going to be like. (laughs) This is how it's going to go. When you start turning your mind away from the world and you start agreeing with God, this this is where it starts for Christians. Don't be afraid of this verse. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. I mean, James really delivers the intensity of the command here in verse 9. And at first it may seem counterintuitive because as Christians we know that repentance brings joy. Christians aren't called to be wretched and mournful. We don't want the world to see a bunch of wretched, mournful, gloomy people. They won't want Christianity if that's what we're about. We're called to be joyful in all things and to be at peace. But James here says if you are going to get out of your quarrels, if you're going to get out of your selfish desires, if you're going to unhook yourself from the world and get yourself attached to the affections of God the way that you should, this is where it's 
it starts. Cleanse yourself of your impurity. Cleanse yourself of your sin. And you know what that's going to do, Christian? It's going to make you wretched when you think how far you have wandered from the one who loves you jealously. We should feel wretched over our sin. Because when our mind agrees with God, we see our sin for what it is. You know what God hates? He hates sin. He despises sin. It's an abomination. And so when we think of our sin, we should hate it too because our mind agrees with the mind of God and our heart agrees with the heart of God. And so when we look at our own sin, James says here, you are wretched and you mourn and you weep that we should be so sinful. We weep over our rebellious hearts and the offense that our sin is to God. We mourn the grief that we inflict on the Spirit of Christ and the burden of our sin on His cross. Yes, we rejoice that Jesus provides for us His sacrifice, but we mourn that we are the cause of it. As the hymn goes, it was my sin that held Him there. And James says... You should mourn, and you should weep, and you should be wretched, and you should be laid low. In the Old Testament, this was the sackcloth and ashes of repentance. When we realize the damage our sin has done to the holiness of God and to our own righteousness. James will not permit us in this text to have a small view of our sin. If you have a light and temporary and casual view of your sin, then you will never have a right view of God and his love and his holiness. We must see sin as God sees sin, and it must make us wretched, and we should hate it and mourn it and reject it just as God does. If our hearts view sin as God views sin, then that means they're in agreement with God, and they're turned towards seeing sin as God does, and that is repentance. James summarizes the result in verse 10. Here's the the conclusion. Humble yourselves then before God, and he will exalt you. So in direct comparison to verses 1 to 4, in which we are exalting ourselves, we're exalting ourselves over others, we're exalting ourselves in our pride, in our ambition, in our desires. James says, instead of exalting yourself, humble yourself, and God will exalt you. Jesus says in Matthew 20, 16, the last will be first and the first will be last. And as we humble ourselves to God, then he will exalt us. He will raise us up to the highest reward of salvation and eternal life. So if we look at verses 1 to 4, we saw that James was describing all of that stuff was one category, which was sin, 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 sin. Then we encounter God in the middle verse. We understand the jealous love of God and the grace that he gives to the humble. And then James says, here's the remedy. And all of these remedies we can also put in a category. It's really just one word. Here's the answer. What is submitting to God? Repenting. What is resisting the devil? Repenting. What is drawing near to God? Repentance. What is cleansing your hands? Repentance. What is purifying your hearts? Repentance. What is weeping over our sin? Repentance. So James has a simple solution, a simple remedy to our condition. He says, brothers and sisters, you are fighting, you are bickering, you are quarreling, you are killing each other in these endless quarrels, and you are at war in yourselves, and that ultimately is putting you at war with God. 
No God is jealously in love with you, and he will give grace if you will humble yourself. And here's how you humble yourself. You repent, 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 repent. Repent just means turning away from the world and turning towards God. It means changing our minds to be in agreement with God, changing our hearts to be aligned with God's heart. Because he's a jealous God, and he gives grace to those who repent and humble themselves, and he will exalt them. So our question is quite simple then, framed in this context. On which side of God's jealous love and free grace are you living his, his jealous love and his free grace is right there in verses 5 and 6. Are, are you living in the first part or in the second part? Uh, are you living here in sin, rising from idolatry and quarrels and fights and broken relationships and angst and anger and you know wanting and ha- not getting? Or are you living on this side in repentance and humility? There's no grace to be found there. If you turn away from your pride, if you submit to God, if you resist temptation, if you're daily drawing near to God in his word and prayer and among his people, if you're cleansing your life of worldliness and weeping and grieving over your sin, then there's grace to be found there. There's endless grace from a God who jealously loves you there. Jealousy is important, you see, because God does not want us to give our hearts away to the world. He does not want us to give our hearts away to everything that will destroy us. In his love, he has sent his son to die on the cross for us. That's how jealous he is of our love. To make a way for our sin to be dealt with and to receive his mercy and grace. When we're able to see God for who he is and lay down our weapons and lay down our struggle and release our hold on the world... That humility releases the grace of God that flows from his love. God sent his spirit to awaken us to this knowledge. And so if you're a believer and you're living in the first part, you know how to get to the second part. And if you're listening today, you're here or you're online or you're hearing this sometime recorded later and you have never understood the jealous love of God in this way, you've never realized that your love for the world is canceling out or it's disqualifying you from the love that, or the grace that God wants to show you, it doesn't disqualify you from the love of God, it disqualifies you from the grace of God's mercy to forgive your sins. And if you're just understanding that now, you can understand then, you can just turn to God. He, he loves you. He sent his son to die for you. He has grace that he is waiting to give you, mercy to forgive your sins, to satisfy you in ways the world can never satisfy you, so that you can find joy and peace and happiness and satisfaction no matter what is going on around you. And he wants to save you. He wants to exalt you. He wants to lift you up, save you, exalt you eternally with everlasting life. And the spirit that God gives us drags out into the light our condition of sin so that we can see ourselves and see God's love the way that we need to be seen, to have our sins forgiven and our shame removed and our hearts satisfied in our Creator who loves us. And He's done all of this through His Son, Jesus Christ. So the question remains, what side of God's love and grace are you living on? Whether Christian, believer, or unbeliever, the choice is for all of us to know God know his love, humble ourselves, and receive his grace. Let's pray. 
Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that right at the heart of this message from James is you and your character and who you are. Because without question, that absolutely is what everything is rooted on. Our foundation, our ground level, is that you are a loving, jealously loving God who gladly gives grace if we just turn ourselves, our lives towards you. You will receive us. You are waiting to receive us. And so I say again, whether believer or unbeliever, whatever's going on in our lives, we need to be living not in the selfishness of the world and at war with our passions and at war with each other. We need to be living at peace with you. So humble all of us equally, Lord, that we might know your grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.